Father, we're so grateful that we can gather here in your house as we hear your word, as we hear uh, the testimony of scripture. I just pray that you, you bless our time together. I pray that you bring back uh, the Gwens home safely from their trip and that they had an amazing time visiting Ashley and visiting friends. Uh, we pray for open hearts and open ears as we dive into your word today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are going to be in Psalm 19, 7 through 11 today. And uh, before we get there, I'm going to take you through a little bit of a church history lesson, if that's okay. So hopefully you liked history uh, when you were in school. Uh, my mom was a history teacher. She kind of does a, a different stuff now. Mom, I'm forgetting it, so when you watch this on camera, I'm sorry. Uh, economics, maybe? I don't know, something like that. Uh, but she was a history teacher. So I've always really been uh, drawn into history, and I, I personally enjoy it. Um, so here's our history lesson. Back in 2017, uh, the church, Christianity, uh, celebrated uh, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And now the Protestant Reformation was one of the most important events to occur uh, in the past 500 years of the history of the church. And so what a lot of people consider to be the, the kick-starting event for the Reformation was the hanging of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther on the door of Castle Wittenberg. Uh, back in 1517. Now, there's been some debate of whether or not uh, it was Luther who hung the theses up, or if it was a student of his, or if it was uh, uh, you know, a friend of Luther. Uh, or, but, but regardless of who was the actual person to hang it up, we know on October 31st, 1517, the 95 theses by Martin Luther were hung up on the castle Wittenberg door uh, in the hopes of sparking conversation. Because back then, you didn't have... Uh, a Twitter or Facebook to say, hey, this is what I want to discuss today. Instead, you would take your document, you would nail it to a door, people would come, and it would almost act like a bulletin board. And so they would read it and say, oh, let's discuss whatever. And so that is what Luther intended to do, was to kind of kickstart some sort of conversation on a, just some, some discretion, some, some things that he was finding uh, with, that was coming out of the Catholic Church in terms of teaching. And so back in 2017, when I was still pastoring in Georgia, um, we did a youth service where we talked about uh, the importance of what the Reformation stood for by what uh, is known as the five solas. You have sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solos Christus, and soli dio gloria. Or if you're like me and you don't know any Latin outside of those uh, solas, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. These five statements were central to the doctrines that were being rediscovered in the Protestant Reformation. So I'm bringing this up because this year, 2021, in case you weren't sure and you were still thinking this is like March of 2020, because it just kind of feels like that sometimes. Um, this year was a, uh, the anniversary, a 500th, of another really important event known as the Diet of Worms. And I know it looks like it says Diet of Worms. That's not like a new keto diet or anything. That is Diet of Worms. And so uh, in 1521, Emperor Charles V assembled on behalf of the Catholic Church something that is known as the Imperial Diet. And at this Diet, uh, Martin Luther, he was summoned to the city of Worms, where he was told that he must renounce or affirm the views that he had preached about and written about during his lifetime. Pope Leo X, he issued what is known as a papal bull, which is basically just a fancy way of saying the Pope decrees this. And so... Uh, the Pope, he claims to have found over 40 errors in Luther's 95 Theses and in the writings that Luther was producing or teaching at the time. And uh, basically, 
he demanded that the emperor have Luther summoned. So Luther agreed to come to the city of Worms on behalf of one thing, that he was promised safe passage to and from the city. Um, they said, yeah, sure, why not? And so Luther uh, left to go to the city of Worms, and he arrived there on April 16, 1521. And he was told that he would appear before the council the next day. On April 17th, Luther, he appears, and Johann von Eck, who was the presiding officer over the council, asked Luther if he was indeed the author of the books and the articles that were in front of them, and uh, asked basically if he was willing to admit to being a heretic and recant of his views. And so Luther realizes that this is a very important decision. He wants some time to think it over and to pray about it. And so they give him one day. They give him one day to look over all of his writings and to pray over if he should recant or renounce what he had taught. So at 4 p.m. April 18th, Luther arrives before the council and says that he would not renounce what he had written unless it could be proven by scripture that it was wrong or that he was wrong. And so what we get from this moment is probably the most famous statement that Martin Luther ever said. Here's what he said. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. These words have been depicted in, in film. There have been books written about this statement. There have been conferences that have been built up around what Luther was saying at this point. And so at this moment, sola scriptura, scripture alone, really sort of jumps out as one of the battle cries of the Reformation. When we talk about scripture alone, we mean that the Bible is the sole infallible inspired source of authority for the Christian faith. What this means is that the Bible is sufficient for everything that we need to know in life. R.C. Sproul, he said that scripture is infallible and inerrant because it comes to us by the superintendence of God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible is inspired in the sense that its author ultimately is God. Even though it is transmitted through human writers, the ultimate source of its truth and its content comes from God. And God, of course, is infallible. I am concerned that we are a part of a generation that has lost sight of the majesty of God as it is revealed in Scripture. In our hands, in, in our lifetime, we can possess a book that is the inspired, infallible Word of God. This book is the most important book in the entire world throughout history, and there will never be a time where there is another book that surpasses it. No book can say that it has done what the Word of God has done. Have we lost sight of the glory of God that is revealed through His Word? Charles Spurgeon, he said that half our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. Half of our worries come because we do not understand scriptures. What I want to do today, Lord willing, is stir up in our hearts this, this, this thing where when we look at the Bible at, at, on our nightstands or, or on our bookshelf, hopefully not getting too much dust, when we look at the book, that we just go, wow, this is the word of God almighty. When, like, like when we step outside and we look at, at the universe and we think, wow, this is a lot, this is beautiful, that we can look at the word of God and say, and here 
is the best way we can meet the God who made all of this. That is what we have as we look at the word of God. We're not having just some any other book. We're having the book of the Lord. I want us to leave here today, not just in love with scripture, but with the God that has breathed it out. Luther fought for the preeminence of the word for man, and we need to join in on that fight, on that desire. So where we're going to focus this morning is in Psalm 19, 7 through 11. This is what David said. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So what, what is David saying here in these verses? I think if we kind of just, just look at them, we can kind of over, uh, we, can, we can kind of miss what we're going for. We can kind of miss the, uh, the majesty of what, what David is saying. Um, and, and, and when we do that, we miss out on some long-term application. When David says that the law of the Lord is perfect, our first thought might be to kind of call foul and say, well, hold on, Brady, the, the law is the first five books of the Bible. You're talking about the sufficiency and perfection of the Bible. I took my, my one seminary class, law, first five books. That's all David's talking about. That's all David had. When we read that the law is perfect, there's two things that we need to remind ourselves. The law was given by the Lord so that man would follow him. You know what the law says? I can probably, I mean, Jesus summarizes the law in a few, few words, but I can summarize it uh, too. Here's what the law says. In order for you to be most satisfied in your life for eternity, you need to follow the Lord faithfully. If you want to be satisfied, if you want to see the Lord, you need to be perfect. And so God requires us to be, perf to be perfect, but our sin has so far removed us from God that it is impossible on our own works and deeds to ever obtain that perfection. Uh, one thing that the law does perfectly is it shows us our total inability to save ourselves. It is just our, like, like it shows us that, hey, we're all on level ground. We are all bums. We're all sinners. And so what the law does is it tells us that if God does not do something in order to save you, you cannot do anything. You can't. You're not going to get anywhere. So unless Christ steps in, unless the Holy Spirit steps in, then you're toast. The law does not just whisper to you that you have the potential to be a better person. The Bible's job is not to make you necessarily feel better about your own abilities, as if, as if you're the hero in this, okay? Because the Bible, as I said before, it's not about you. This is not your story. So the law is not just whispering to you, hey, be a little bit better. It's shouting at you with a holy megaphone of, hey, you need Jesus. Because you're not going to get this unless you have him first. At the time of the law, salvation is still by faith alone. The Old Testament saints, they looked ahead in faith to the coming Messiah. We now, we look ahead to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ as he comes again. And so the law shows us that we need a savior. Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, here's this totally new concept for salvation. Here's this whole new thing that, you sh that you're just going to now understand. No, salvation is by faith, and it's always been by faith. Paul says in Romans 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? 
by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What is, do you, like, you hear what Paul is saying here? If it was not for the law, which is holy and righteous and good, how would we have known that we need a Savior? If we were not aware of our own shortcomings, how would we have seen just how far we had fallen? The law is perfect because it is of God, and it shows us that we fall short of righteousness. Paul goes on and says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law exists so we can see how far removed we are from the Lord. And Martin Luther, going back to him, he has one of the best commentaries that I have ever read on a book of the Bible. It's his commentary on uh, the book of Galatians. And it's a longer quote, but here's, here's what he says. For God, seeing that this universal plague of the whole world, that is man's opinion of his own righteousness, his hypocrisy and self-delusion could not be beaten down by any other means, he would that it should be slain by the law, not forever, but that when it is once slain, man might be raised up again above and beyond the law, and there might hear this voice, Fear not. I have not given the law and killed thee by the law that thou shouldst abide in this death, but that you should fear me and live. For the presuming of good works and righteousness stands not with the fear of God, and where the fear of God is not, there can be no thirsting for grace or life. God must therefore have a strong hammer to break the rocks and a hot burning fire in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains, that is to destroy this furious beast, that when a man by this bruising is brought to nothing, he should despair of his own strength, and being thus terrified should thirst after mercy and remission of sins." To break the solid mountain that is the heart of fallen mankind, God uses the hammer of the law to break through. We are so against the thing of God that it would be easier for you to use a spoon to tunnel through a mountain than it would be for you to save yourself by your own works and your own righteousness. That is what the law tells us. It says, hey, you think you can do this? You can't. You think you can reach God? You can't. But we know who can the second thing that I want us to think about is how Christ came to fulfill the law and how he said that not a single word, jot, or tittle in all of Scripture would pass away. In 2 Peter 3, Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level as the Old Testament Scriptures. So all this is to say that when David says that the law is perfect, we can confidently say that the entire Word of God is perfect. It is sufficient. But David doesn't just stop at saying that the word of God is perfect. He continues to say that it revives the soul. For all that are subject to the word of God, lives are totally transformed. What other book can claim to have this, the, the man-altering, history-changing, soul-saving power that the Bible has? Name me one book that has changed as many lives and as many hearts as the word of God. Spurgeon, he, uh, he says this, he said, when the law drives and the gospel draws, the action is different, but the end is one. 
For by God's spirit, the soul is made to yield and cries, turn me and I shall be turned. Try men's depraved nature with philosophy and reasoning and it laughs your efforts to scorn. But the word of God soon works a transformation. This book of God is a life-altering book. Every word in these pages changes man for the better. Not only is the testimony of God, which is found in Scripture, assured, a sure and steady place for us to put our feet, it, it, it makes the simple wise. Here's, where, here's what this is. If you are a person who's got the IQ of a rotten banana, like that re- if you rely on the Word of God and you have saving faith in Christ, you are wiser than some of the most gifted scientists and geniuses in the world. God says that the atheist that denies the Lord's existence is a fool. In the eyes of God, if you rely on his word, if you have faith in Christ, you are wiser than all the Stephen Hawkins, Richard Dawkins, and Bill Nye, the science guys put together. But do you rely on his word? Here's something that that has kind of blown my mind. I tried to explain it uh, to the kids a couple weeks ago. This is kind of just a new sort of thing. Have you ever thought about how something that seems as complex as salvation through the gospel can be explained by a child? Like, like, you can get, like, a little five-year-old that's grown up in the church that has uh, godly parents who have, have explained the ways of the gospel. You put them up here, and if you ask them, how are you, like, like, what's man's problem? We sin. What's the solution? Jesus. Boom. Gospel. I mean, there's probably a little bit more to it, but, but that's, that's the gist of it. A child can explain this. What else is like that in the world? You know, we think that we need greater and greater and greater knowledge, that we need to know more to have a significant impact Uh, for the world. But really, the only thing that's going to have any eternal value, any true significance, is a life that has been devoted to the expansion of God's kingdom. Have you ever thought about how the story of Scripture, the gospel, is perfect for every single person in the world? Here's what I mean. Jesus did not come to this earth as a king. He's coming back as a king, but the first time he didn't come as a king. What did he come as? No, little baby. He came as a baby. He came as a suffering servant. If Jesus came as a king, only the regal and the prestigious might be interested in him. Jesus didn't come as a rich man. He was homeless. He was a carpenter. And if he came as this prestigious being, he might be perceived as only for those that have much. We see that Jesus suffered. If he never did, where would be all of the hope for those that are suffering? Tim Keller, he he kind of expands on this, and this is what he says. He says that what if Jesus had come as a philosopher with a great intellectual system of thought? then the only people helped by him would have been the intellectuals. What if he had led a powerful movement of moral teaching with himself as the living example? And only the people strong, able, and accomplished enough to imitate him would have benefited. But across both history and nations of the world, we have seen people from all classes and conditions finding peace and power in the gospel of Jesus. Poor people do not gather in homes to discuss Plato or Aristotle, but they do study and talk about the message of Jesus, and their lives are transformed and changed by it. The beauty of Jesus is that there's not a single person here or anywhere else in the world who says that they cannot relate to him. That, like, like we're, not, we're not reaching for, for, for someone that has nothing to do with us. We're not reaching for someone that's totally unrelatable. Uh, Jesus can meet our greatest needs. Now, here's something that I want you to kind of notice real quick. Uh, it is 1141 according to my iPad. In this time, we've looked at one verse of the Bible. Just one verse in, what, 20 minutes? Something like that? 
And we're not just like, uh, we're, not, we're not grasping at straws. We're not trying to just piece some things together, trying to really expand out how long I talk, because you know I can go for a while. Uh, we're getting good stuff, right? So at least tell me that so I feel good about myself. We're getting good stuff, because we're not just like getting like, like just like some, eh. we're getting stuff that's refreshing for the soul. And this is from one verse. Now, when it comes to the word of God, this is not uncommon at all. Because scripture comes alive when we take the time to really look at it and dive in. I've, I've heard people who've, who, and kids have asked me, you know, well, it's just, I'm trying to read the Bible. I'm trying to get a lot out of them. I, and it's just kind of struggling. And I'm like, well, what, like, what are you reading? I'm trying to read like 10 chapters a day. Like, bro, I don't even read 10 chapters a day. I probably should, but like, this is, where, well, this is what I mean. If you slow down, just breathe it in. Take in like three, four verses. Just stop and just, just let God do what God does through just like a chapter of a day, in a day. And so I've done this uh, pre-pandemic kind of exercise with the kids where we were going through uh, the Gospel of John. And so what I told them to do is I said, take 10 minutes and I want you to look at John 3.16. And so me wanting to show them what, kind of what could happen is I said, this is what I did today. I took 10 minutes in, the, in John 3, 16, and in 10 minutes, I felt the Lord had put on my heart 25 different things from that one verse. If I had 20 minutes, I probably would have gotten even more. So this is, this, is, this is it. 10 minutes with one verse can radically change your life, can radically change your life. So for time's sake, we're going to go ahead and jump to the end of Psalm 10 through 11. David says that it is more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. When you approach the Bible, do you approach it in this way? Do you find the words and commands of God to be more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey? Uh, Spurgeon, going back to him, he said that the pleasures arising from a right understanding of the divine testimony are of the most delightful order. Earthly enjoyments are utterly contemptible if compared with them. The sweetest joys, yes, the sweetest of the sweetest, falls to the portion of him who has God's truth to be his heritage. I want to share with you, I guess, a little testimony for me. I guess my own Bible study, my own uh, preaching. I love expository, verse-by-verse studying and preaching of the Word of God. Like, I, I, I love it. I love doing this. And so uh, one thing that I've kind of worried about in the past is I, I'm hoping maybe I got 60 to 70 years left, uh, considering, you know, what I eat, probably less, but uh, I'm hoping for a good amount of time. I'm worried that I won't be able to preach every verse of the Bible. And I know that's probably like, like I'm, I'm trying to really reach for something there, but I, I want that. Because I love diving into the Word of God. I'd love one day to spend 12 years going through the book of Galatians with you. It'd be a great 12 years. Um, I love it. And so I, uh, I see this book of the Lord as this gold mine for my life. And I told uh, Laura about a week or so ago that I finally felt like I knew what it was like to love the Word of God, to really love it. Like, I, I'm excited to read this book. I know for some, some people, like, reading? Ugh. But, like, I'm excited to dive into this. And so every time I, I step up to, to teach to, to you guys or to the students, like, I get excited. I feel like I'm that kid on Christmas that sees all his presents and is just wanting to show everybody what he's got. I'm like that kid at the beach with the metal detector that is like, you know, going back and forth. And I find something that's really great. And I'm just like, hey, look what I found. Look what I'm seeing in here. Look what I'm studying. Look at this. But instead of like being this little kid with a metal detector that's finding bottle caps, 
I'm an almost 27-year-old with the Word of God finding gold. I get to bring before you and my students and my Heavenly Father something that is truly incredible. I get to say, Lord, look what I've found. Look at, the, look at the treasure that I found. Look at the pearl that I found in this. And so, to me, that's exciting. What I want to do with the little bit of time we have left is give you four applications, four truths that I think are needed for us as believers today. The first one is this, that Christians that hold on to the truths of Scripture will not be swayed by the things that go against Scripture. You don't need me to tell you that we live in dark times. You don't need to tell me, or I don't need to tell you that uh, it seems like the world has kind of lost sight of Christian morality, or even just good morality at this point. It doesn't even have to be Christian, just good. Um, we know that the world is a dark place. Um, man, in their fallen nature, has always been away from the Lord. The things that we're seeing today is not necessarily new. We're not getting less Christian. Uh, we've always, the world's always been anti-Christ. Um, Psalm 14, 2 through 3 shows this. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We are not living in a world that is becoming significantly less God-fearing than at any other point in human history. People say that things are going to get worse before they get better, and I guess in a sense that is true, but I don't think you can get much worse than uh, the standard that you see here in Psalm 14 or in Romans 1 through 3 of uh, there's not a single person here who does good. And so uh, we worry about the day when the Antichrist comes, but in a way he's already here. This is what John says in 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that the whole period from the coming of our Lord, and especially from his death and resurrection and ascension, and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the whole of the period from that until his final return is the last hour. The last hour is sometimes used to cover the whole era, the whole epoch that lies from the finished work of Christ until his ultimate return in glory. Um, from there, John says in uh, 1 John 4, 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The spirit of the Antichrist is everything that stands against Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The works of Satan are anti-Christian, so the workings of the Antichrist have been active since the fall. So here's where I'm going with this. Christians that have the word of God as their foundation of what they do will not be easily swayed by the lies that the world is going to throw at us. It's not going to be swayed by, by all of these things that are saying, uh, do this and live. Do this and enjoy. We're not going to fall into that trap. And so what we say is like, like here's the thing. If your eye is always on what the world or culture or society says is good and Jesus is just kind of over here off-centered, you're not going to be faithful. You're going to stumble. You're going to trip over your own feet because you are not having your eyes solely set on Jesus and on his word. You won't be faithful. You'll be an easily persuaded coward that's falling victim to the popular sayings and, and thoughts of the day. But if we hold fast to the word of God and the God of scripture, then we are like the man that builds his house on the rock and not on shifting sands. 
The second uh, application is this. Uh, Christians that build their lives on the truths of Scripture will attempt great things on behalf of Scripture. Christians that see the command to go and reach the world with the message of the gospel will risk life and limb, material goods and happiness to reach people with the gospel. Students of the word are not going to settle for cheap grace like Bonhoeffer talked about. They're not going to settle for sit back and watch the rest of the Christians do the hard work while I sit back and enjoy my remaining years. They will take the word where it needs to go, where Christ leads them. Where Christ says, take up, their, or take up your cross and follow him, they will do that wherever he leads. The Bible reveals man's great need for God. And the more we are in love with this book, the more we will love the God that has inspired it. And the more that we love the God of Scripture and the universe, the greater our love will be for those that are created in his image. John Owen, he made this uh, known in his very uh, you know, Puritan-like language when he said that the exposition and application of the word by many and that by virtue of an extraordinary assistance of the Spirit of God was of singular use in the church itself. For if all scripture given by inspiration from God so expounded and applied be profitable, the more the church enjoyeth thereof, the more will its faith, love, obedience, and consolation be increased. That is Puritan for when your heart is captive to the word of God, then the Holy Spirit will see to it that you accomplish great things on behalf of God. The Bible reveals man's great need for God. And the more we love this book, the further we will go with the gospel. You see, the contents of this book is so precious to so many people. There are people all over the world right now who are dying just to hold the book. Not just like they have this eagerness to it. No, if you are caught with this book, you will die. And you know what? And there is not a single person there who would say this has not been total gain. They will not say that this was not worth it. Can we say the same thing? Would we rather die than part with the book of God? We are so spoiled with what we got. We've got a lot of good things. I wish that, that we could say if the book of God, if the Bible was out of our lives, then we would just be just crushed. Where this, these places where persecution is elevated, the joy in the hearts of these Christians is real. To hear the word of God is truly precious. So this goes into application number three. The Christian that loves scripture will be satisfied. David said in Psalm 19:11 that moreover by them is your servant warned and keeping them there is great reward. There's great reward for the student of the word. Everything that you need to know in life in order to be truly satisfied is in the word of God. The Bible might not give you everything that you want in life, but it will give you everything that you need in life to glorify God and enjoy him forever. J.C. Ryle, he said that the true Christian is the only happy man because he has sources of happiness entirely independent of the world. And so I would ask you, are you happy like, ask yourself that. Kind of have this little reflection time. Are you happy? Do you have joy? Are you happy? And I don't mean do you have moments of happiness, because even the saddest person uh, in the world has like one second of happiness that is a little bit less miserable than another second. But do you have true joy in your heart? True everlasting happiness cannot be found anywhere outside of God and his word. And so Christians that are in love with the word of God, they will be satisfied because they see through the word of God that true satisfaction can only be found in Christ. 
Jesus says this when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If the supreme source of our satisfaction in this life is the Lord, he himself will make sure that that satisfaction is met. But is he the greatest satisfaction of your life? Because I tell you this, if he is not, you'll never experience everlasting true joy. You might have some days that are better than others, but you will not have the true joy. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, like I, like I have bad days. Christians aren't guaranteed not to have bad days, but what they are guaranteed is that that, that bad moment is only temporary. These moments like where we're, we're crushed, where we feel like the weight of the world is on us, one of these days we're going to look back on it and it's going to be like a quarter of a second in the grand scheme of eternity. But that is only for those who have the Lord, who have taken, uh, you know, have placed their faith in Christ. So how do we hunger for more of God? How do we thirst for more of him? It starts with being in love with his word. So one uh, last application is this. A high view of scripture reminds the Christian of God's glory. Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The word of God is glorious because the God who has spoke it forth is infinitely glorious. When you look at the Bible, do you see the infinite glory of God that is behind it? Do you see the supreme worth of Christ? These pages, it's the book of life. Like there is so much in this. There's so much beauty in the word of God and we lose sight of it so easily. John Piper, he has a really great book. It's called Reading uh, the Bible Supernaturally. And he says, we should always read God's word in order to see his supreme worth and beauty, his glory. In other words, I'm not only saying that seeing the glory of God does happen in reading God's word, I'm also saying that this should always be our aim in reading the Bible. There may be a hundred practical reasons, good ones, that we turn to God's word. This aim should be in and under and over all of them always. God is magnified when we are in love with his word. Like when I read the Bible, here's the thing, I don't want to read it as if I'm reading any other book. Like, I love reading. Laura's told me I got a problem. I need to stop buying books. I'll pray about it. Uh, ain't happening. Um, I love reading. But I don't want to read my books like I'm going to read the Bible because it's not, like, it's not like this book. Here's the thing. When I read my Bible, what I hope is that as I'm reading it, that the glory of God's coming through and that Jesus just punches me in the face. Like, he gives this, like, holy right hook to me, and I'm just like, yeah, Lord, do this again. Do Like, let me see you. I want to read my Bible so that I can know God, I want my heart to be captivated by the word so that the thought of not having it just crushes me. Like if you were to take my Bible, I would say I'd rather you kill me first. That's what I want. So we as Christians that hold fast to the sola scriptura, scripture alone, are Christians that want to truly know the God who is there. When you read your Bible, do you get a taste of God's glory? Do you see the infinite worth of knowing God through scripture? And I hope that you do, because I think that a lot of us, we're guilty of just reading the word just so we can check it off our to-do list. Like we wake up, we read like, you know, the uh, cover page or something, and just like, ah, Crossway, Wheaton, Illinois. All right, cool. I did it. I read my Bible. You're not going to find the infinite worth of Jesus in that. We don't just read it to read it. When I read my Bible, I want to know God. I want to see God. I want to be so in love with his word that that. I just want to find every ounce of him on every single page. 
So as we close this morning, my prayer is this, that you hold fast to the word of God. And I'll, I'll throw this out there too. No one that doesn't have the Holy Spirit in their lives will ever be able to carry out the four applications that we went through this morning. If Christ has not radically transformed you, then basically you just wasted an hour hearing this. But Christ offers himself to us so that we could read the book to find the extreme glory of God. If you're not following Christ, this book will has, has the ability to transform you. If you want to be satisfied, know Christ and know his word. And if you don't know him, there's a lot of Christians here that would love to introduce you. There's a lot of Christians that would say, hey, I know what he's talking about. I've read my Bible. I've seen God's glory in this. I have seen him do amazing things. Like, here's the thing. We can stand outside and look at the beauty of creation and think, wow. But we look at this book and we see the God who made it all. The glory of God in the book of God is greater than, than standing at the foot of Everest and looking at it and just seeing the mountains in all their glory because we can know the God that built them with just a word. The world that we live in today is not that much different than the, word that Mar- or the world that Martin Luther lived in 500 years ago. The spiritual ground of man is dry, but fountains of God's word is always overflowing. So what I'm hoping as we leave here this morning, as we are about to sing in a moment, is that we are committed to run to the well that never runs dry, that we're willing to run for Jesus Christ and say, Lord, wherever you take me, I'm going to go because nothing else matters. Just give me your word. It's kind of like, have you all ever seen uh, the play or the movie, The Crucible? Y'all remember when uh, I forget, John Proctor, he was saying, uh, take everything, but leave me my name, that sort of thing. We as the Christians, we can say, take everything, but give me Christ because that is everything. That is joy. That is the aim of all living is him. Let's go to him in prayer, and then we will worship together. Uh, At the end of the service, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be in the back. Not right now, because I have to play guitar, but I'll be with you at the end of service. Rex is in the back, Um, but let's pray together, and then we'll sing. God, you, in your mercy, you have given us your word. You have given us your commandments. We have seen your beauty and your glory through scripture. We are so thankful that, that you have revealed, to, revealed yourself to us, not just in the things that have been made, but through your word. We are so grateful that we can know you through the Bible. And so I pray that we leave here today with a newfound desire to love you greater, to read your word with newfound devotion. So we love you and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.